So in our study of 1 Corinthians, if I can untangle my tongue, we are learning the importance of what in the church? Unity. Unity, yes. Very good. You don't need to see my notices. What's going on here? It says, do not disturb. There we go. All right, yes, we're learning about unity in the church through the experience, unfortunately, of a failure, right? The Corinthians church had failed in this regard, uh, but they did repent. We know that in the early church, it was founded by Paul, and then who succeeded Paul? Apollos, okay? And did he stay there very long? I brought this up when I taught chapter 4. No, he left. <laughs> he actually was very discouraged by what was happening in the church. And he actually kind of went into a semi-retirement there for a while, according to tradition. Um, the church had, had been founded by Paul, took on by Apollos, and had fallen into this depraved syncretism with former secular habits and practices. Carnality, uh, pride, incest, lawsuits, drunkenness at the Lord's table, and other things that had to do with money, liberty, and doctrine, uh, some of which we haven't studied yet, but particularly Christian liberty as an issue. And that's what we'll be studying here today. It had become an unmanageable mess, and Paul got word of this disaster through Chloe and some others, and he actually started writing the letters, and particularly 1 Corinthians, even though that was the second letter, it's the one that started to address the issues. Now, last week, the poignant question was, to marry or not to marry, right? This week, the poignant question is to eat or not to eat. That is the question. So chapters 8 through 10 still are somewhat tied together in that they are still addressing a common set of issues, but there are some distinctives. This chapter that we're studying today has to do with Christian liberty that has to do with food sacrificed to idols. Chapter 9 will have to do with Christian liberties that Paul sets aside for the sake of the ministry and for the gospel. And chapter 10 continues on with some admonitions about idolatry and immorality. So they're, they're a little bit tied together, but each of them has their own main point. Now in the Corinthian church, as with most churches, there was a mixture of mature believers and those that were not so mature and those that were unbelievers all together. That's pretty common. That's actually part of our mission is to reach people, and we do want them to, to be comfortable enough to come and learn, but we don't want to be compromising on our theology and our doctrine. And where those two meet, we have this issue of Christian liberties that need to be surrendered, and that's our discussion for today. So apparently, conflicts had arisen in the church such that people that were mature in the faith and knew it was okay to eat food to, that had been offered to idols uh, were lording it over or causing some sort of a disturbance with those that were weaker in the faith and weren't showing any love or deference. And so that's kind of where we meet the crossroads today here. Now, MacArthur gives us some helpful background as to what the whole thing about meat or food being offered to idols is all about. First of all, Greeks and Romans were polytheistic, so they worshipped more than one god. They, they had gods of war, they had gods of love, they had gods of travel, they had gods of justice, whatever it was that was convenient. They also were polydemonistic in that the air was filled with evil spirits, and you wanted to be careful that you didn't allow them into your body. And one of the quickest ways, or the most common ways that they feared these demonic spirits or evil spirits was that they would attach themselves to food, okay? So they would then be, have these uh, special sacrifices to their idols to cleanse the food, as it were, from these evil spirits. And the only way to protect this was to bring it to the temple or have a priest do something with it. Now, there was three ways in which this was done. One was they would burn it entirely on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, just completely disintegrate what it, there was, which didn't provide much lasting value to those that wanted to eat, right? Uh, some of the food was offered to pay the priest, and while the rest could be kept by the worshiper. And you actually see some of this in the offerings that were in the Old Testament, 
that some of the offerings, while burnt offerings, others were to be shared between the priest and the offerer. So that was not uncommon. But finally, the priest had more food than they could eat. So what did they do with the rest of it? They sold it. Where? The public market at your local Kroger or whatever. You couldn't tell, right? And so it was often sold for a higher price, though, in some cases, because it had already been purged of its evil spirits. So we see some capitalism was involved here as well, right? The problem became then, how did one know if the food you were eating had gone through this process? Now, if you went to the market and you paid a higher price for it, you would know that. But what if you were at a friend's house or you went to a wedding event? You know, what is, what's the... The, the person weak in their faith is supposed to do that's concerned about this. Are they supposed to skip the wedding reception? Are they supposed to attend, uh, not attend a required feast? Are they to not eat at a neighbor's home ever? Are they to become a vegetarian? Uh, maybe that wouldn't solve the problem either because it was more than meat that was being offered to idols. Or maybe just not eat at all. And that probably wouldn't be too productive. Or are they just going to insist on growing their own food? Well, they might find an avenue in that too. But you can see the problem, right? It was not easy to protect that person's conscience by not knowing, because they would not know entirely where things were coming from. It was quite inconvenient. Now, some of the new believers had been convicted of these evils of worshiping idols, but weren't yet convinced of their freedom to eat such food in those practices. It would bring back memories of their old practices. It could be a temptation to them. Some of the Jews also, some of the believers were also Jews, which came from a background that had lots of dietary laws, and there was, you know, special ways to prepare the food and stuff. So it's also worth observing before we get started that eating food to idols was never forbidden in Scripture. So now that begs the question, how far does the Christian freedom go in regard to behavior not specifically forbidden in Scripture? So that's where we find ourselves today. So we find that, our, that Paul here instructs believers to limit their freedom in Christ when the exercise of their freedom may offend another's conscience. And this comes directly from verse 9 that we're to take care that this liberty of yours, that is to eat meat sacrificed to idols, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So to address this matter, Paul, has, uh, Paul needed to ensure that the correct knowledge about idols wasn't compromised while still nurturing the consciences of those who were weaker in the faith and knowledge, though still going through Theology 101. So to do this, Paul gives us three instructions to properly manage our liberty in Christ. We are to be affirmed in the basis of our liberty in Christ. And the next two that we'll have coming up is that we are to be aware of the potential negative impacts of practicing our freedoms of liberty in Christ. And we are to be willing to limit our freedom in Christ. So what we'll be learning there, while it's focused on the idea of food sacrificed to idols, the deference that we're supposed to learn from this is applicable in many ways. We're just going to be focusing primarily on that which is offered to idols this morning. So open with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. We'll try to untangle all that here in a minute. Number four, verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as though it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. 
but food will not commend us to God, we are neither the worse if we do not eat or the better if we do eat. But take care that your liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For though your knowledge, or for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Just, there are some challenges here that we may not be sensitive to, and I just pray, Father, that all of us will be open to hear your spirit speak to us through your word, that we might glorify you and build your church in the unity that you intended. We ask in Jesus' name. So the first instruction Paul gives us as believers to properly manage their liberty in Christ is that we should be affirmed in the basis of our liberty in Christ. Paul knows that there's a, there's a challenge here, but he does not want to compromise theology. He does not want to compromise how we're to understand God. And he says things sacrificed to idols here means anything that is sacrificed, not just meat. That's the most common and the fact that is, he's talking here about things offered to idols means that, that we are dealing here with a spiritual, religious practice that could be a pen, potentially offensive not only to Jews, but also to the Greeks. For Jewish believers, they were forbidden to eat food sacrificed to idols, all right? but they were also forbidden to trade in it. Now, as believers, we are not forbidden this. right? Eating food offered to idols defiled them as like a, if they had touched a corpse, and con been in contact with it. To force a Jew to eat such food was to make them an apostate, which was pretty cruel, right? To a Jew, avoiding such foods rested on strict application of the first commandment and not, uh, and not on more, mere super, excuse me, rested on the strict application of the commandments and not on mere superstition of fear and spirits. Eating such food was equivalent to committing religious syncretism which was strictly prohibited. So this was a very difficult issue for Jews that were coming to the faith. For the Gentiles, eating things sacrificed to idols could still be offensive simply because of their lingering habits. You know, we all have flesh patterns that we still wrestle with even though we've become a believer. And by the grace of God, we overcome those through our sanctification. But we're not all there yet, right? We are all still working through these. And to be tempted with these things that were of our past, it's in fact a temptation. It's a challenge to us. So before spelling out specific things, the pieces of knowledge that he wants to reaffirm here, though, he gives us five reminders that will help us in knowing our truth, the truth that we're to stand in. First of all, we can be confident in knowing the truth. As the second part of verse 1 says, we know that we all have knowledge He's not, he's not waffling here. We do have knowledge about something. And we are, do want to keep on applying it correctly. The we know here means simply to know something in the sense of having an understanding. But we have knowledge is experiential knowledge. It's the intimate knowledge. Now, we have an understanding that we have real knowledge. This is not to be a secret. It's not to be buried. It's to be held on to. Paul has already uh, taught and commanded some, uh, convinced some that eating food sacrificed to idols is a non-issue to the believer. That's why there's a problem. Some people in the church already are convinced of this. Yet because some of them have been offended by these that are practicing their freedom, Paul then reminds us that uh, having knowledge can lead to conceit. Now, but he says here, knowledge makes arrogant. So he's just firing off in these first few verses a whole lot of points before he really gets to what are we supposed to do about it. And he's reminding us here that, hey, uh, we have knowledge, but remember, you can become arrogant with that knowledge. And some of you have already practiced this with your whole issue with about who's who in the pastor world on forming the church that we covered in the earlier chapters, right? 
Knowledge here makes arrogant. It's the same kind of word for knowledge, but the word arrogant here means to be puffed up, big-headed about it. And this is where it gets to be a problem with other believers. As mentioned, arrogance uh, is, is already in the church, and it leads to divisions. So then he also reminds us that we are called to be in love and show love in the church. But love edifies, he says here. We, he says in other letters, of course, how important it is that uh, love is the most important thing in 1 Corinthians 13. Now faith, hope, love, and abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love, right? It is the word agape. He said it's, it's to edify, it's to build up in such a way as to make something last. It's a word that's used to mean we're building a strong building that's going to stand for a long time or to build a nation that's going to last for many years. Before Paul even gets into the practicum of the things we're to remember, he speaks to the dangers of knowing about the truth about things sacrificed to idols. And so he's given us these reminders. Um, and on the one hand, it's good to have this experiential knowledge that comes from knowing the truth that there's only one God. But on the other hand, that knowledge could be thrown around in such a way that it really hurts other people. You know, looking down on others, judging them as being immature, telling them to grow up faster. You know, those are cruel things to be said, calling them idiots, ignorance, whatever. Now, I, I hope and trust none of us do that kind of thing, but this is to teach us here to be more sensitive in other areas that are, go beyond that which has to deal with food sacrifice to idols as well. Paul gets right to the point, love is the greater way. And he, this is kind of his outline for the whole chapter right here. So the fourth thing that he reminds us of to help us mitigate uh, our, our problems with liberty in the church liberty and the faith, is that we, have, we are confined in our human ability to know everything. Look at verse 2. If anybody supposes that he knows anything, he really doesn't know what he's talking about. That's what he's saying. You really don't know everything. So beware of this extreme as well. Supposes here is the inclination to thinking something that he knows. Again, all the, the rest of the words known, know, that kind of thing is all the same experiential knowledge throughout the rest of the chapter. So anyone supposing or thinking that he really knows something, he has not yet known as he ought to know experientially. Well, who does know? The Lord, right? Claiming to know something is to forget our human limitations. We really don't have that capacity and it's not been given to us. I mean, we didn't we learned some of that from Ecclesiastes here recently. We live in this bubble of our time for a purpose. Uh, we don't have the bigger picture. All that we know is that he, there is an eternity and we're to live in our part of it. This is Paul's way of saying, hey, you may know something, but you don't know everything. Not yet. Not like God. So don't be proud about it. Don't become arrogant. Paul's point is that love is the important quality when one has knowledge. You do have knowledge, you are to have love with it. Now it's been said, ignorance does not know that it does not know. True knowledge does not know and knows it. Amen. Let that sink in for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> ignorance does not know that it does not know. True knowledge does not know and knows it we do embrace the limitations of our knowledge. We have no reason, no basis to ever become arrogant. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 and 13, Paul echoes this idea. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. There will come a day where we not, will not be hindered by our human nature and our sin. And we will know everything that God wants us to know. It may not be everything he knows, but we will know fully as much as we need to. And we will have the bigger picture because we will be present with the Lord without the encumbrance of sin. Finally, on this topic of remembering things that will guide us in our liberty of Christ is that um, we are 
to be reminded that we are always in communion with God and that God knows us perfectly. It reads in verse three, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Might scratch your head and say, how did he come to that from that phrase? If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Well, I think we all know that in our heart, but let me kind of unwind some of that for us, right? The word love here is agape. Again, the word known is the same root idea of experiential knowledge, right? And we know that by him means God because that's the nearest antecedent for all of you grammarians out there, right? This flow of thought may not jump out, but here's a couple of ideas. To truly love God means that you already know who he is and you are grateful for his gospel. Why do I say this? Because otherwise you'd still be in the flesh and you would hate God. Romans 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot. That's right. So for you to even love God in the first place, something has happened to you. And to know him means you were called by him to salvation. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For you to love God means that you've been called to salvation. And being saved means that you were known in the first place. You see the loop? Yeah, Ephesians 1, uh, 4 through 10. Okay? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That means he knew what they were, okay? According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. For you to love God means that God fully knows you. That's a comforting thought. That's a reassuring thought. And it goes through the whole cycle here that when we're known that well, we have even greater love because we know that we've been forgiven more. He who has been forgiven much will love much. Right? On the contrary, it's also true, Matthew 7, 23, to not be not known by the Lord is to be an unbeliever. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So this is a very condensed few verses that Paul introduces here before he even gets to what are we supposed to do about this conflict so to love God is to be known by him. A reminder also in Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now having prepared us with these five remembrances of the basis of our freedoms in Christ, Paul so now lays out three fundamental truths that form the basis of our freedoms specifically related to the issue of eating food offered to idols. So what is this knowledge that he wants to remind us of? The first fundamental knowledge is that there is no such thing as an idol as in the sense of being a real deity. Okay? Verse 4a, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. Hmm. Okay? Uh, since there's no real deities in the, other than God, then the process in which the food goes through being a piece of wood or a stone, an idol being a piece of wood or stone, is irrelevant. The idol's not real. 
Somebody's moving it around, putting it on a fire, taking it off a fire, eating part of it, whatever they're doing, it's irrelevant to the Christian because the idol is fake. The idol is empty. Now, there's plenty of examples of this. I'm not going to go read all of them. It would be here for weeks. But um, just by way of example, you might remember what an idol is like in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The ark was sitting there before Dagon. You remember what happened to there? It got taken from the Israelites. Eli was not doing really well as a priest, nor were his sons. They were worse. And they took this, the ark out into battle, and as God's judgment, they lost the ark. Now, there was also a judgment on the, the, the uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to somehow confuse that with current news, and that wasn't right. <laughs> the Philistines, thank you. Um, so the ark was placed before their god Dagon, who over the night, guess what happened to him? <laughs> Fell on his face. Oh, so they set him back up again. And then what happened the next day? He went down again, this time with his hands severed. Okay, poor Dagon. Needs men to keep him on his throne, whatever. But it's said best by the psalmist in Psalm 115, 4 through 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. And they have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. We all know the, the folly of idolatry in this kind of form. It's a little more subtle when it becomes other things that we can worship, whether it be money or careers or ourselves, whatever it is. But scripture here tells us not to fear, much less worship any human imaginations. In Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, it says, you have no other gods before me, nor any image of myself. You are not to put up such things. It follows then that our freedom in Christ is not aided or abetted by creations of human hands, which is the second fundamental truth that a believer is to um, not fear food offered to idols. There's only one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if we look then at the next verse, which is verse 4b, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things, and we exist for him. One Lord, Jesus Christ, for whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now, Paul acknowledges that there are indeed imagined gods, because he just told us there is only one. Uh, but, you know, people make them up. That's kind of what he's saying here, right? Um, he's acknowledging that, but they're of no substance. All scripture claims, as scripture claims in many places, uh, there are just a few. Let me just repeat a couple. Um, Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Paul was well-grounded, of course, in all of this Old Testament theology. It's still present and alive today. Uh, Isaiah 44 through 46 has a bunch of these. I'll skip all of those. Um, For whom are, from whom all things are all things, which he's saying in verse 6, he has even given us his son, and we exist for the Father. Okay? He goes on to say, There is one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Colossians 1 echoes this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We're seeing the Trinity working together as a unity, the same kind of unity we are to have in ourselves as believers and in the congregations. Now, while the Holy Spirit isn't specifically mentioned in this passage, we know from other verses that the Holy Spirit is actually a part of all this that is going on. 
He believes, he's the one that brings conviction to us to believe. He indwells believers. He seals us for redemption and he intercedes in our behalf as Ephesians 1 goes on in verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And then Romans 8, 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he also searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's an integral whole. There is one God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, there are no real idols. There's only one God. So Paul provides us also the third fundamental truth that the believer is free to eat the foods offered to idols because food does nothing to commend us to God. And in verse, I'm skipping ahead to verse 8, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do or not eat, neither the better if we do not. I, sorry. It's all right there in front of you. You can just read it. <laughs> we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Now, commend us here literally means to cause to be present or be drawn near to. The food will do nothing for you spiritually to be reconciled or to re maintain any harmony with God. Now, the context here is, again, reminding us that it's not forbidden by God for us to eat meat offered to idols, specifically um, in this case here. So Paul's point is that doing things not forbidden have no significance in our relationship with God. First Timothy 4.4, 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if, if it is received with gratitude. Now that's not to go against anything that is strictly forbidden, right? We have this freedom as believers in Christ. Our consciences can be clear. Now, all that said, for some of us, there may be things we should not eat. And certain amounts we should not eat, right? It's true that, you know, there can be things that are bad for our physical health. But that's separate from our spiritual health, okay? We may need to avoid allergens, toxins, or things that lead us to gluttony or whatever. But none of this affects us spiritually. Mark 7, 15 there's nothing outside of the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the mouth are what defile the man. Because that comes from where? comes from the heart. So we've seen the first instruction here for managing our liberty in Christ that we, first of all, need to hold fast to the theology that we know is true. Okay? But that leads us to a second Instruction, and that is that we are to be aware of the potential negative impacts of practicing our liberties. We find ourselves back now in verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. It is compromised. Okay? And so he's taking, he's shifting us now to be aware that others don't understand their liberties. He's reminding us that what we know about our freedoms is true. Not everybody's at that same place, right, in their growth. Some don't see how their being only one God somehow negates the whole impact of their prior beliefs that evil spirits don't still somehow be attached to the food. We know that, hopefully. We've, most of us that I know of here in this room have been believers for some time. Maybe some of you are new to the faith. These are the things that we are still to teach and we are still to hold. But there's a way we're supposed to practice that and we'll get to that here in a moment. Maybe they don't, maybe a new believer doesn't yet comprehend the sealing and the protecting power of the Holy Spirit that forbids evil spirits to even be in us. It's just not going to happen. If you have the Holy Spirit, you will not be possessed. Okay? Now, because some of the food was not distinguishable, they were scared. I don't know where this came from. I'm still concerned, right? 
The problem here was that those that did have the orthodox views, some of them were not practicing the expression of that in love. So Paul teaches us the importance of the conscience before God. First of all, so in verse 9 it says, but take care that the liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Where have we heard this phrase stumbling block before? Gospels maybe? How about Mark chapter 9 verse 42? Jesus was saying, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if he stopped. No, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. So who puts a high priority on the conscience? God does. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Does God care about this? For even though one's conscience is not correct about the matter, going against it is a serious crime. Any of you ever heard of Martin Luther? I hope. (laughs) When he stood before the Diet of Worms in 1521, he said, Since then, your serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, neither horned or toothed. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And that changed the world. Do you think this is important? It's not just for what we do to other people's conscience, it's what's in our own, right? Verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge during their dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? The word strengthen here is to build up again, you know, but, but wait, wait, wait. Aren't believers, new believers, supposed to get on with the truth and grow up in the faith? Well, yes, but how? In a loving way, not a forceful way. Paul's point here is that doing this would not be solving the problem out of love or truth, but would instead be teaching that one week in the faith is to disregard their conscience. You think somebody cares about that? The Lord, maybe? MacArthur sums it up in this point. He says, the voice of a Christian's conscience is the instrument of the Holy Spirit. If a believer's conscience is weak, it is because he is spiritually weak and immature and not because the leading of his conscience is weak. Conscience is God's doorkeeper to keep us out of places where we could be harmed. As a mature Conscience allows us to go more places and to do more things because we have more spiritual strength and better judgment. A clear conscience is a wonderful thing. How dare we violate that in someone who is learning and growing. Another reminder from Scripture of the importance of the conscience before God is that it's an instrument of judgment. Romans 2, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. The secrets of men. 
the conscience through Jesus Christ. The conscience of every person is right there in front of God. It can't be hidden. God tells us how everyone is without excuse in Romans 1, verses 18 through 21. He reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And for any of us to cause another to stumble before they have come to full knowledge is a sin. And so we get another reminder that the importance of the conscience before God is also paramount in our witness. Continuing on in our text, while we may be free to dine in an idol's temple. Never thought about doing that, but we are free to do that. The one who does so against their conscience, though, it's a sin to them. Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? The point here is that violating the conscience is a sin also. It's not just what you do. It's how you go about it. Multiple places in Scripture, Paul speaks to how important it is to maintain one's own clear conscience for the sake of the gospel. Acts 24, 16, in view of this, I maintain always to have a blameless conscience both before God and before men. 1 Timothy 1, 5, but the goal of our instruction, he's speaking to Timothy, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, this commandment I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good faith, keeping faith, and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to this faith. See the connection? A good conscience needs to be developed, but it's integral to the strength of your faith as well. 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God when I serve, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, and I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night. James 2.12 and 13, so speak and so act as those who have been judged by the law of liberty for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy mercy triumphs over judgment again it speaks toward this we need to live and demonstrate our liberties with love and then finally in first peter 3:16 and keep a good conscience that's an imperative so that in the thing in which you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in christ will be put to shame it is a part of sharing the gospel to have a clear conscience, it's also part of, a, of good discipleship that we not violate other people's conscience. Scripture also reminds us the importance of the conscience before God in another way, and that it is only cleansed by what? The blood of Christ. You cannot clear your own conscience. You cannot do enough good to offset anything you've ever done. It is only cleared by the blood of Christ Hebrews 9, 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who had been defiled sanctified the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 10, 4, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have this confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of the faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This in and of itself should convince us that we should not only protect our own conscience, but those of others. Now, the importance of protecting others' conscience, verse 11, must not 
defiled by our liberties. Verse 11, for though your knowledge you have, for through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Now ruin literally means here to be spiritually harmed, and as MacArthur puts it, it means to come to sin. May it never be, as Paul would say in Romans. This is unimaginable, inconceivable. The importance of protecting another's conscience is that um, we have to be careful that we're not offending another's because it is a sin against Christ. Verse 12, And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against your Lord. It's also echoed in Romans 14, 21, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. I think we see the point here, right? The conscience is very critical. It is of supreme importance to our Lord, both when in ourselves, it took the blood of Christ to cleanse it, and it's important in other people. Would we rather have a millstone around our neck? May it never be. Finally, the third instruction for managing our liberty in Christ is that we be willing to limit our liberties in Christ. Verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I may not cause my brother to stumble. Whoa, I like my steak. I like my ribeye. <laughs> I like my ice cream, whatever it is, you know. Um, could you give that up if it caused another to stumble? Hmm, it's getting personal now, right? Paul's admonition is to know your liberties, but limit them out of love for others. 1 Corinthians 10, I know we're skipping ahead here, but it applies to what we're speaking about here today. Starting in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one speak of his own good, but that which that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Okay, that's for you and me, right? For the earth is the Lord and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions. Just sit down. Don't preempt the, the debate. But if anyone says to you, this is meat offered to, sac to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. Now, I, think, I think that's kind of a setup in some cases, right? But the point here, what Paul's getting to, for conscience sake, you defer, you stop, you go hungry for that meal, right? I mean not your own conscience, but for the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all of the glory of God, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that many may be saved. Do you see the motive? you see the purpose? you see the bigger picture? This isn't about us. We're to proceed with our liberties, but cautiously. And we're to be ready to give them up at any time. Romans 15, 1 and 2. Now we who are strong ought to hear the weak, bear the weakness of those, who, those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach me and approach you fell on me. In Philippians 2.4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Paul wants believers to be strong in their faith. He wants them to be free in their faith because of the knowledge that they've been given from Scripture. One without, but he also wants them to do it in love. Right? One without the other is tragic. Having neither is tragic. A mature believer has both. You have knowledge and you have love. So for our applications, number one, we are to continue to grow in our knowledge of God, our theology, and enjoy the freedoms provided by Christ. Okay? Number two, we should be eager to limit our liberty at any time and to any degree in order to help a fellow believer and not cause them to stumble in their faith because of our liberties. 
Number three, causing a brother to stumble is more than an offense against him. It's an offense against God, our Lord. Number four, we should not expand our own actions and habits before our own consciences permit them. We're not to outrun our headlights, if you will. Even in our own sake. If you have a concern about something, don't plow ahead. Don't violate your conscience. If Jesus said somebody should have a millstone stuck around their neck and be cast in the sea because their conscience was defiled, what about us defiling our own? Seek it out. Seek the word. Go to an elder. Get some teaching on it. Find out what your liberties in Christ really are. Find out what matters and what doesn't. Where do you have freedom? And if you want to practice a certain way but you know that you're doing so in freedom, fine. Maybe you still don't want to eat meat to idols, but you know that you're free to. You're not defiling your conscience by saying no. You have that freedom. Don't outrun your headlights in your conscience. And all we do, love should be the preeminent motivation to God and to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you, first of all, for the freedom that we have, that our conscience is being clear Lord, we're not worried about idols and we're not worried about food and we're not worried about so many things because we rest in you. Father, what a great privilege. And Father, we ask you to, to help us to be sensitive, to be alert, to be proactive, to anticipate and that what we do might be offensive to others and that we, we stop before it happens before there's an offense. And Father, help us all to, to really show love to those that are weak in faith and be gentle with them, that they may grow in your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name.